message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. And you may be seated as you open up to Ruth chapter 3. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that we've been going uh, kind of verse by verse through Ruth. Uh, for the most part, that's what we do here. It's just expository preaching where we just go verse by verse through different books of the Bible. And uh, Ruth is one of those really interesting ones. I may have offended some the very first week that we introduced that when I said that it was kind of like Walt Disney a little bit uh, because I did not want to think that, you know, I'm thinking that Walt Disney is some prolific Christian writer or something. It's just, you know, that Walt Disney learned from the storytelling of the Bible, perhaps, you know, that a good story is, is this element of a good love story, but challenges of both the good and the bad and, and kind of when to bring in drama. And we've actually seen this in this true story of these real people that really did exist, Ruth and, and the rest of her family. And we see that it started off in really tragic circumstances, that this family goes and because of a, of a famine in their own land, they go into another land that they really weren't supposed to go to. Israelites were not really supposed to go into Moab, and yet they went there, and they existed for a while, the, 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 the boys married, and yet tragedy happened upon them. The, the father dies, and the two sons die, at least these three ladies, the mother and the two daughters-in-law, uh, they don't know what to do, they start to come back, they find, find out that there is finally food back in Bethlehem, and so they start their journey back, and the mother goes to both of the daughter-in-laws and said, look, you're Moabites. And I'm going back to Israel. This is going to be a foreign land to you. It's going to be a foreign culture. They're going to do strange things that you don't kind of understand. And so you'd probably be best to stay here and marry again with somebody that's from your own culture and kind of understands. And uh, one of those daughter-in-laws decided to do that. Orpah did that. But, But Ruth said, no, you know, I believe in God. Your God has become my God. Now, your people are my people. And so in one way, yes, I'm going to a place that is really foreign and kind of different from what I'm used to. And yet, I believe these things. And this is who I am now. And so Ruth follows Naomi. We come back. And in chapter 2, two weeks ago, we, we asked that foundational question. When it's all kind of out there, do we believe in luck? Do we believe in karma? Do we believe in those things? Or do we believe in the providential sovereign hand of God? I promise you, you cannot believe in luck and the sovereignty of God at the same time. You can't believe in just in karma. And, you know, this world is not kind of going by these different laws where we just believe that this happens because that happened. It is under the hand of a sovereign God. And so in life, when tragedy happens, we have to ask ourselves, was this just, am I hoping for luck? Am I hoping just for something good to happen? Or is there a sovereign God, a personal God who actually knows my life and has my life in his mind and his heart. I, said, I don't know about you, but even in the most tragic, the dark of days, that knowing that there's this personal God that knows of me, knows the number of hairs on my head, that cares for me even more than the sparrow in the tree, that he has this kind of intimate knowledge of me, this is much more than, oh, I hope I'm lucky today. And we begin to see that in chapter 2, that all of a sudden, the Bible kind of, in the Jewish writing, they kind of play a uh, play upon the words there. That it just so happened that as Ruth is going out to glean from these fields, that he, she just so happens to go to the field of Boaz. We find out later that this is a, a relative. 
And it wasn't just a happenstance. It wasn't just luck, but it was the ordained will of God. When we left last time, things were really looking up. Boaz comes and, and he kind of draws uh, toward Ruth, not in a love story kind of way, your typical love story. We have no mention here about the beauty of Ruth. There's not been a single word that says that there was this sexual attraction or anything like that that Boaz has, has toward Ruth. He just has a, a lot of admiration because he's heard great things. He said, you know, people are actually talking about you in very favorable ways because the way that you have taken up with Naomi and the way that you have come into this foreign land and how you've just kind of loved her and supported her. And so things are looking really, really good by the time that we come to chapter 2. And then we come to chapter 3, and I will tell you that scholars believe that Ruth chapter 3 is, uh, and I think they will use this technical word, one of the weirdest books in the entire Bible. I mean, it really is. It's one of these when you, we start reading through, you're going to go, what does that even mean? Why did she do that? What does this mean? It is one of those that theologians have to use this word. Chapter 3 is descriptive, not prescriptive. Okay? And when we get into it, you'll understand why. When we come upon some... Uh, because here's what the Bible does, guys. The Bible doesn't clean up the messiness of life. Don't you love that about the Bible? That when guys sin, they sin. When David sins with Bathsheba, it doesn't say, well, you know, he's a really good king and he never had any faults. Maybe one or two. No, it tells us the tragic story of when David messed up. Why? Because there's always redemption. There's always a hope that there's forgiveness there, and there's this redeeming story that comes not out of all the victories of life, but out of all the losses of life. Now, I don't know about you, but I like that about the Bible. Because what if you opened up and every one of these stories were just pitch perfect? I don't know about you, but I would go, okay, that's good for them, but what about me? Because my life's not pitch perfect. There's two things, and I don't want to be, you know, spoiler alert, because chapter 4 as weird as chapter 3 is, chapter 4 is one of the most beautiful chapters of the entire Bible. Because what we see God doing is taking eternity. He's taking the story that is weaving to Jesus Christ, and he's taking Old Testament and New Testament, and he all brings it down, and it just focuses on Christ. But until we get there, we have this really weird, I'll say it, kind of uncomfortable kind of chapter where there's some strange things that go on. It is descriptive of what really happened. It is not prescriptive. And I say that because when we get in here, Naomi's going to give some advice to Ruth that I never would have given to my two daughters. Okay? <laughs> I'm not saying that Naomi was wrong. I'm just saying not over my dead body. You know, what I've said but we, you know, that's where we have to trust that maybe perhaps Naomi really does. We know that she loves Ruth and she wants to give good advice. And uh, yet scholars are kind of, they're very all over the place. Some say this was terrible advice, but by the grace of God, it worked out. Others will say, well, Naomi knew all along because of just God's, you know, maybe giving her instruction and wisdom that this was the right thing to do. So two words this morning. This chapter is descriptive. It's describing what really happened. It is not prescriptive, okay? So none of us as parents have to go, okay, if my child, if my little girl gets into her late 20s and she's still not married off, maybe I'll just 
suggest this, okay? This is not prescriptive, okay? With that in mind, let's kind of pick up where we were. Ruth chapter 2, verse 23. It kind of sets the stage. So she kept, that is Ruth, kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning into the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, there's a, it kind of tells us what's going on there. And, and what do you see of significance right there in the middle of that verse? What time is it seasonally? Harvest. It's harvest, but what time of the harvest? It's the end. Okay, so she's been gleaning. And this gleaning season, does it last forever? No, it comes to an end. And so Ruth and Boaz... She's been invited. She's been going over there gleaning and getting wheat and, and all this and bringing it back to Naomi. And so this has been going on, we don't know, what, weeks, maybe even months. There's this relationship, this provision, but it's near the end of the season. Naomi, being either a very wise person or maybe a very frightful person, says, oh, my goodness, we need to do something here. Verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Now, when she says rest, what she means is a husband. Okay? When we look at the, it comes from the root word in the Hebrew, from husband. And I know that some of you are going, yeah, like my husband is rest for me. You know, I, I realize that we may not make the modern equivalent to rest and husband, but that's the word. Okay? And what it meant was protection and provision. Guys, remember, Old Testament, we don't have to agree with this, but we certainly have to understand this. The, the role of women in that society was not very high. And if you were a widow, you did not have a lot of opportunity to go out there and make provision for yourself. Agree or disagree, this was the culture that the hope was find a man and you kind of, you know, he, he's the provider for you. Again, we don't try to modernize that, okay? Because that's not what the Bible's trying to do. It's just descriptive here. It's not being prescriptive that oh, every woman, you're not complaining until you find rest in a, in a man. No, it's, it's telling us the story here, and that was the situation. And the situation was if Naomi and Ruth, if Ruth doesn't marry, then there's really not going to be a place of rest for her. And so this Ruth word, um, Naomi's basically saying, Ruth, I need you to... I need to help you get a husband. If we go down, it's not the first time we see that. If you go back to Ruth chapter 1, verse 9, remember I was talking about the two daughter-in-laws? Look what it said. The Lord grant that each of you might find what? Rest. It's the same Hebrew word, and it means uh, you need to find a future here, and that future is going to be linked to a husband. Again, don't, don't bring it into modern you know, America. This was the culture. And this was the truth of the situation. And so we begin to go, let's go back now to chapter 3, verse 2. And this is where it seems to get a little weird. Naomi says, Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. And what it's at the end of, after they've kind of harvested all the wheat, then you have to, to do all the threshing. I'm not a farmer. I'm not an agricultural man, but, you know, just based on this, you know, you go out there and you're separating, you know, the wheat to take the good, and then all the other just kind of blows away. Usually you would do this where you catch a little bit of a breeze and you throw it up there and it just kind of separates the good from the bad. 
This is at the end of the harvest season, and this is what he's doing. And so Naomi knows this and says, okay, I've heard that this is where Boaz is. He's out there working his own fields, even though he's a wealthy guy. He's got a lot of people who work the fields. He's actually out there doing this. And so here's what I want you to do. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. What is she saying? Basically, go, go bathe, put on perfume, and put on your best clothes. By best clothes, please do not read in there. Again, it's really hard in our 21st century mind to think, oh, man, the little black dress, you know, or the, you know, the low-cut red dress. No, there's nothing seductive here in, the, in that sense. Think about it. Up to this point, more than likely, the only time that Boaz has seen Ruth is when? When she's coming out there. And remember I said that she was such a hard worker? So, you know, if he shows up at 9 o'clock, she's been there since 7.30, and she's already covered in dust and all this stuff. And so, you know, even on her prettiest days, if you want to say it that way, you know, before Boaz, she's pretty much looking like us in the pollen. Okay, she's just out there, and uh, she's covered in the dust and the grime of all that. And so Naomi goes, you know, he's never seen you quite like this. Go bathe. Put on your best clothes. And really, the... I think my, my favorite interpretation of when it says your outer cloak and best clothes, take off your widow's clothes. I think that's probably most strategically uh, the best reading of the words that were used in the Hebrew because she had lost a husband and, and she was still in that mindset. And so very much she could have been still dressing like a widow. Whatever it is, whether it's the best clothes, whether it's take off your widow's clothes and put on non-widow clothes, this is the suggestion that Naomi gives to her daughter-in-law. Uh, not only does it sound quite risky, but in our context of, of our day, it seems kind of risque. Okay. Verse 4. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, this is not what I'm telling my girls to do. I have two girls, okay? Well, we have two girls. And, and, you know, in their dating life, I would have never suggested, you know, wait till he goes to sleep. When he's asleep, go down, uncover his feet, and then just wait. And whatever he says to do, you do. It's hard for us to take it out of our 21st century. I see Eric over there. Eric's just going, no. <laughs> the Marine comes out in you, doesn't it, buddy? Yeah. Once a Marine, always Marine. Yeah, we're going, this is not going to work here. And yet, is Naomi just really giving bad advice? Some scholars would say yes. Others would say no, that, you know, this is a sign of faith. Is she just desperate because she needs to get Ruth married off? Some would say yes. Others would say no, she's making great steps of faith here. Guys, I, I want you to know that in my mind, I can't deduce between it being very wise I just know that in God's providence, he's going to use this in his grace. And that's why we say this is descriptive of what happened, not prescriptive. Hey, this is what we need to do. Now, let me realize that Boaz seemed to be attracted to Ruth. But nowhere in here in any of her suggestions is she saying to seduce him. There would be some that would look at this and go, you know, man, this is the last thing you want to do. But basically what Naomi is telling her daughter-in-law to do is to go and present herself, Ruth, 
to Boaz. And basically this. I'm not proposing to you, but I would not object if you proposed to me. I'm not asking you to marry me, but if you asked me to marry you, I probably wouldn't say no. That's what's going on here. Is that she's presenting herself, and and guys, this is an imaginable kind of risk of faith, okay? So far, Boaz has showed incredible kind of kindness and graced her, but he's an older man. She's a younger woman. You know, maybe it's just this fatherly touch. Maybe he's just really kind and generous. Nothing in this story makes us want to sexualize this. It's just, unfortunately, the culture that we live in, we're going, never, never, never. She goes out there. I think it's an act of faith. She's a foreign girl in a foreign world with foreign customs. She goes out there. Her mother-in-law says, perhaps try this. She follows that direction. At great risk, because what if Boaz says, what are you doing here, and rejects her? What if he uh, tries to take advantage of her? There's all kinds of things about this plan that can go wrong. But look at her response in verse 5. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So far, everything that we know about Ruth is that she seems to be a pretty wise woman, pretty put-together woman in the sense that she kind of is not one of these that is just waiting for life to happen. She's one of those that, that, that really kind of takes aggressively and, and tries to live proactively rather than reactively. This is, I, I don't see any victimization here. I don't hear her say, okay, you told me to do this, I'll do it. What I see is a woman responding in, in kind of a blind faith or a little bit of a blind faith. Okay, everything that you say, I'm going to honor you. you you're my mother-in-law. You know this culture. You know a lot of things that I don't know. And so I'm going to do whatever you do. So she went down, verse 6, she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded. She does everything. She, she bathed. She, she put on perfume. She put on these best clothes. She does it. She goes and follows directions, verse 7. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and covered his feet to lay down. Now, this whole uncovering of the feet thing, Ricky, do you want to give us kind of your explanation of that? <laughs> That's totally unprepared. I just put it, I mean, no, you don't have to do that. Is that where? It's kind of weird. That just uncovers his feet. Scholars have looked at this, and there's a lot of, I think it may mean this, but nobody has said, hey, I've nailed it. This is what it means. We really, we, we look at this and we really don't know except for that it's just kind of exposing the feet. Again, don't sexualize it. Just, and she's lying there at the feet. We don't really know a lot of what this custom, this part of the custom would have been or why Naomi suggested this or why Ruth did it. But she's obedient and she does it. There's a lot that we don't know in this chapter, but here's what we do know, that she acted upon what she was told. And I believe that she acted in faith. And I believe that God, has there ever been time, guys, that you just didn't know what to do, and yet, as strange as it was, you felt God leading you to do something that really seemed outside of the box? It just wasn't conventional. And you're going, this is really unconventional. God, I, I cannot find any prescriptive verse in the Bible that says to go do it this way, and yet I feel that you're calling me to go do this. 
And sometimes it's just that blind faith. And let me correct that. It's not blind faith because blind faith means that we have nothing to go on. We have the very character of God to go on. God, because you did this, this, and this before, now that you asked me to do this, even though this is really strange, it seems very unconventional, but I know you, God. See, I believe that there's going to be a time in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I believe there's going to be a time in your life that God is going to ask you to do something that's probably much more outside the line of something that's prescriptive. I'm not saying most of the time, 99% of the time, you're going to be able to be able to track that and go back and say, well, you know, based on this verse, this verse, this verse, and this verse, I feel this is what God has called me to do. But there may be some times if you're just following God that he may ask you to do something that you really can't find a biblical example. But if you know that you know that you know that it's from God's heart, you know, if you came to me and said, Bobby, I, I can't find a biblical example, what do you think I should do? I'm going, hey, if you really discern that this is from God, I, I say you, you trust God's heart and who he is. I don't think it's going to happen much. How many stories like this can we find in all of the Bible that are much more descriptive than prescriptive? Very few. And what we find here, though, is that she follows along. I believe that is a commitment of faith. Verse 8 and 9. This is just weird, okay? At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? I mean, it's midnight, okay? And he's never seen her dressed up. (laughs) And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, this does have cultural context. This one we do know what it means. Uh, This was a way of basically saying, again, to to spread your wings over was a uh, colloquialism, if you want to say it that way, of that era, that time. We see it in other places of the Bible. And basically means, okay, Uh, we can get married. So she's not asking so much Boaz to marry her, but she's saying again, I would probably say yes if you asked me to marry you. I want your protection. Spread your wings over me. This rest, this protection. But first she said, I'm your servant. And perhaps this is part of the uncovering the feet, so that it's very, you know, she's at the feet of Boaz, and she says, in humility and submission, I am your servant. And in the NIV, it says, spread your, the corner of your garment over me. How many of you have a Bible that says that instead of the wings? Okay. They mean the same thing, okay? Uh, and, and both of them come down, back to a Middle Eastern culture that expressed a desire for marriage. Spreading the wing, the garment over you was, okay, I, I want to be under your protection and your care. It's the last part that I really want to focus on. For you are a what? A redeemer. This is based on Old Testament Levitical law. This would have been Jewish law. In Leviticus 25, verse 25, if a member of your house uh, household um, had to sell po- po- uh, property because of poverty, they just, you know had to sell the house in order to, to, to make uh, enough money to live off of. It was the responsibility of the other people of the household to come in there and buy that property so that it could remain in the family. Radley, do you have a brother? Okay, let's say that you had a brother, 
and uh, whether it was his own misfortune, his own bad choices, but he's going to lose his house. Old Testament law by Leviticus 25.25 said that if you had means, you would come in and you would buy that property for your brother to keep it in the family. What is God doing there? Does he just want us to be landowners? There's a generational side of God. Please don't miss this. There is a generational side of God that he's in this guys for the generations. It is so hard for us to get out of the now and the present. And, and we just in young marriage class this morning, we were talking about, you know, uh, even in disciplining our kids and, and how we do that, that's so easy just to do the now and forget that we really wanted to have this very proactive rather than a reactive kind of discipline for our kids, that we want to keep this long-term, hey, I'm going for the heart, not just for the behavior. Guys, we live in a world where it's immediate. <coughs> Excuse me. I would tell you God is a generational God. We see this throughout his word, that he's in there for the generations. Another Levitical law in verse 25, uh, chapter 25, verse 47, is that if one of your family members was placed into slavery, it was the family's responsibility to come and buy that person out of slavery. You were the redeemer. In this context, we can go back to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, and if a woman's husband died and they did not have a son to carry on the name then the brother would come in and marry his sister-in-law for what purpose to carry on the name now why did God do that what is God trying to demonstrate to us he's a God of the generations He doesn't want to see a family in loss. He's a a God that is generational in his mindset and his thinking. I'm going to come back to to the end. And we're going to see the beauty of that in chapter 4. When we get to chapter 4, you're going to see all of that in full bloom. What we need to notice here is that Ruth realizes that that Boaz has no responsibility to marry her. He's not the brother-in-law. He's a very, very, very distant, thank you so much, a very, very distant relative on Naomi's side, not on Ruth's side. She's a Moabite, okay? She's very much coming in this, if you want to say, through the back door. Ruth is not suggesting that Boaz must do this, but she asks about his kindness to do this. Now look what happens. This is the part that if we were making a movie, we'd cut to commercial. So you're going, okay, what's gonna Boaz going to do? He's going to say, of course, I'm kind of like you all along. You know, you were just, you know, the first day you walked in, you were kind of hot and sweaty and kind of covered in, but you were beautiful. Well, we don't, are you going to say, what? I'm an old man. You're a young woman. You're, you're a Moabite. We don't marry Moabites. Verse 10 through 11. Let me do the Instagram first. He said yes. Okay. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. See that phrase, worthy woman? It's the same word that used to describe the Proverbs 31 woman. He goes, you know, you're not just the average gal. He doesn't call her a Moabite. Remember last time? 
when she very much can be a foreigner, a foreigner and, and he said, you know your family? I said, okay, you could be this, an idolater. And he said, no, you're, you're part of us. He's done everything to show her grace. And now she basically doesn't come out and say, will you marry me? But it'd be okay if you wanted to propose to me. And he says, yes. What is God doing here? All has to do with this kinsman redeemer. But before you send out the save the date cards, uh, verse 12 and 13, okay? And now it is true that I am a redeemer. I am a relative, a very, very, very distant relative. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. He will redeem. Uh, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. If he, there's a guy that's closer in lineage to you. And if he will marry you, good. Okay? Because you will find the protection, the care that you need. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you lie down until morning. He says, I'm taking charge. I've got to you know, settle this. I want to do it the right way. This is an honorable man, guys. A woman comes all dolled up and lays at your feet, wakes you up maybe by the cold air brushing against your feet because she uncovered your feet. And you wake up and basically, you know, she's just sitting there. My instructions were to just listen to you and do what you tell me to do. And yet this honorable, godly man says, you know, I will marry you. But let me first even go back and make sure because there may be some, there is somebody who's actually closer to you uh, in the, you know, the family tree here. And, and I want to make sure that it's all right. Then he does something. Y'all like the humor of the Bible. The Bible is one of the most funny books you'll ever read. Before she goes the next day, he gives her 60 pounds of barley. Now think about this. This is a good measure to take back to, to Naomi. You know, say, okay, I'm, I'm pledging you know, that I will marry her, and here's 60 pounds of barley. It doesn't say that she had a wheelbarrow. She was, this is a brute of a woman. Okay, Ruth can hold her own. Sixty pounds of barley. And you're in high heels. I don't know that she's in high heels, but she's dressed up, okay? And, and he, but good measure, okay, I would give you sixty pounds of barley. She carries that back to Naomi. It's a wonderful story. She goes back, she says, Naomi, you'll, you'll never guess. Or maybe you will. He said yes. He said yes. What does all this mean? It's a weird story. It's very descriptive and not prescriptive, as we said. I don't know that you would tell any of your daughters to do what Naomi said. I don't, Seth, I don't think you're going to be telling your two girls that. Uh, I certainly would not have told my two girls to do this. I don't think this is the advice that Debbie and Brian are going to give to Anna. Call yourself up, go, you know, at midnight, just kind of slide in there at the end of his feet. What does all this mean? What we see in Boaz is a type of Christ. I don't want to get all kind of, you know, deeply theological here. I want to keep it very practical. But what we see throughout the Old Testament is that God continues to give us little glimpses of what he's going to do ultimately to redeem us in our sins with the Redeemer. Boaz, Naomi, Ruth are all real people. This is not a fictional tale. This is not a parable. This really happened. 
And yet, like so many times in the Old Testament, God is already giving us a foretaste of what's going to happen when the real Redeemer comes. In the same way that when we take the Lord's Supper, it is a foretaste of that marriage supper that we talked about last week. God continues to give us as a people, his people, a foretaste. Why? Because we are of weak faith. And we need a little picture sometimes to encourage us, to, to, to allow us to go on and build our faith so that we can go the next step and the next step. What we see here is that God is already pointing to Christ as the ultimate redeemer. See, if you had to find yourself in this story, guess who you are? Anybody want to venture? I know it's risky. It kind of puts that same risk out there that that Ruth was doing. Who are you in this story? You're Ruth. You're the Moabite. I mean, unless you're Jewish here this morning, we're the Gentiles. We're the ones that are outside the fold of that direct calling that God made in the Old Testament to his people. And what we're seeing in the Old Testament already is something that Peter kind of went right over his head for so long that he was actually going to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter thought that was absurd. And what we see is that God is continuing to call every tribe and every nation into the redemptive grace and love of Jesus Christ. And he gives us all these four days. We are Ruth. We're the Moabite. But there's something else here, and I don't want you to miss this. It shows this great love for the generations. If you disagree with this, call me. We'll talk. Uh, I, I didn't find this in a book anywhere. It's something I really believe that God just laid upon my heart. Do you know where the Moabites come from? Well, Moab. Yeah, it's always the safe guess. Always the safe guess. You don't have to turn there in your Bible. You can, you can look it up later uh, in Genesis nineteen thirty-seven. This is the PG-13 part. I, I will keep it very PG-13. I mean, I'll keep it uh, under that. The Moabites came in, in Genesis chapter 19. If you remember Lot, Lot and Abraham, and Lot gets drunk, and, and then he, his daughters come, and they have an incestuous relationship. And in that verse, it says, and this is where the Moabites come from. And the Israelites are saying, you don't even go into this land. I mean, it's almost as if there's this curse upon them. You don't even travel through Moab. I don't care if you have to, if you're going over here and Moab's right there, you go all the way around. You don't go through Moab. And yet, what we're going to see in chapter 4, guys, is this most amazing thing. That God takes this Moabite woman that has this history, and he presents to her a redeemer. Let me give you a little spoiler alert. You can look it up if you want to. You don't have to. We're going to see in Matthew next week, in the lineage of Christ, this name. Does God care for the generations? 
Instead of writing off a generation of people, uh, a country of people, what does God do? He brings in redemption back to a Moabite and even includes this Moabite in the ancestry of Jesus Christ himself. Here's the hope, guys. Here's the hope. I know some of you had, were raised in the most hellish of all circumstances. I know others... You were not raised with Christian influence. You were not raised with this. You can say, you know, Bobby, I'm the first believer in my, in my family for generations and generations. Take hope in this. Take hope in this. God is a God of the generations. Maybe you say, well, you know, Bobby, alcoholism has been just in my family for years and years and generations and generations. And I'm so tempted because I can't seem to, you know, kind of break that. He's in it for the generations. He's the redeemer. He sends a redeemer to the Moabites. This is us. God is a generational God. No matter what your past says, God has brought redemption to the generations so that you can set a new generational path no matter what your past said so that Christ the redeemer can be the part of that and the foundation forevermore so that your sons and your daughters say amen, amen. Isn't that hope? Some of you were raised by Christian parents. You're going, okay, it was just a given. And so you kind of go, yeah, my grandmother and my granddaddy, and they were all, you know, they, if anything, they forced Christianity upon me. And I just, you know, I didn't have a choice. But not everybody in here this morning has that story. And not everybody in here says, no, I came from where there was good morality, or there came from this and that and the other. This is the hope of a God who's in it for the generations. That through Christ the Redeemer, you can start a whole new generational push that will last for generations and generations and generations. And it won't be under the torment of alcoholism or this or that or whatever it might be that has been a part of a family past that has haunted you and been a heavy weight upon you. But that you would know that there is a Redeemer and that he changes lives, he changes families, and he changes generations. This is our hope in Christ Jesus. I am Ruth. I am the foreigner that has been brought in to be made family. I was the outsider. Don't you even walk in his land. And now he says, no, I'm going to build you a house in heaven so you live right there with me. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the God of the gospel. And in chapter 4, we're going to see this bloom and, and, and fullness. So I invite you to come back next week. It's going to be perfect. I did, I did not, I would love to say, you know, I time this to be the perfect Mother's Day sermon. No, I was going, man, this is a really good sermon. And man, this, oh, and it's Mother's Day. This is really a good Mother's Day sermon. God just kind of uh, worked that out. It's going to be a, a, a great chapter four for Mother's Day and something that I, I pray that God will just write upon our heart. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you. Father, we are the first to confess this is a weird chapter. Father, we see things happening here that we can't even explain. And even though there's been thousands of, of years of theologians to, to be able to look over this, they still have a lot of, they still have a, a question mark over some of these different things that went on. And yet, Father, help us not to miss the important thing. Father, there is a Redeemer, and He is Christ the Lord. For those that feel foreign and outside, and that's not how my family believed. And we've never been raised to think this or that. Father, you have brought a Redeemer to change the generations. To take off the shackles that would bind them. 
of past sin, of slavery to to all kinds of different things, and to have freedom. Father, I pray for those this morning that that truly can say, "My, my, my childhood was a nightmare. And Father, I pray that they know the fullness and the richness that they can have through your Son. Father, I pray for those this morning that maybe did not have that mama, dad, or that grandmother, grandfather that, uh, that influenced them in, in, in the godly way that they, Father, would make sure that they are that mom and dad, that they become that grandmother and grandfather so that a generation of, of and a line will come of people that say, yeah, we know Christ is our Savior and our Lord. Father, if we were raised with Christian parents, Father, help us to be thankful for that. There was probably a time we resented that. There was a time we probably pushed back against that. But Father, in your grace and your mercy, thank you that you gave us a mom and daddy or maybe a grandmother or a grandfather. And we just saw Jesus in them. And it gave us hope during those rebellious years. Thank you, Father, that you have sent a Redeemer And we pray today, Father, that we just uh, glory in that, rest in that, and that we make much of it this morning as we pray all these things in the blessed hope of Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.